Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I think the amazing thing about hip-hop is that regardless of the culture that adopts it, it becomes a music of resistance. We've been looking at hip-hop around the world for the 50th anniversary of the genre. And today on the podcast, we're going to look at how hip-hop's arrival changed music in Korea. I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. This is Commotion. Listen, all year we've been looking at hip-hop's roots. It's been a celebration of hip-hop turning 50. So we've looked at hip-hop scenes across Canada and around the world. And on today's podcast, we're looking at hip-hop in Korea's massive music market. So I talked to Kyung Um. She's a senior lecturer in music at the University of Liverpool. Listen, we can't cover the entire history of Korean hip-hop in about 15 minutes or so. But Kyung gave us a good place to start. So we begin in 1992 when the hip-hop group Soteji and the Boys were emerging. They released a song called I Know, and it became a phenomenon. That's a jam. That's a bit of I Know by Soteji and the Boys. I asked Hei Kyung Um about what she remembered about the early days of hip-hop in Korea. Oh, that was really sensational. First time when Sateji and the boys performed, everyone just went so amazed and really fascinated by a completely new form of art and what they were singing about because it was so rebellious and so different from what it was. So especially young generations, they just absolutely loved it. His nickname was Cultural President. He was the president of a new Korean culture. I'm I'm glad that we were starting there because we asked you to pick five songs to walk us through this history of Korean hip-hop. And the first song you chose is Taeji by Koo Changmo from 2021. He pays tribute to the beginnings of Korean hip-hop in the early 90s by name-dropping the artists that you just named, so Taeji and the boys. Let's listen to a little bit of it. So he also samples some of the song Come Back Home by Sotaji and the boys. Let's hear that. Hey, Kyung, why did you choose to start us off there? Oh, because it's quite meaningful in many ways. It's a kind of tribute to uh, Sotaji and the boys who started hip hop in South Korea in the early 1990s. And although you say strategy is a very legendary and praising it, but also became a very much part of mainstream music industry. So in a way, but he was making, let's say, a critique that strategy is an artistic achievement, mm-hmm. which is a much valued. It's also, uh, uh, let's say, economically rewarded. So it's a kind of um, playing at both sides of the coins. 
Um, I'm interested in this because it's one thing to sort of achieve the artistic achievement, but as you were just mentioning, there is this commercial aspect of it, right? So the first three albums each sell over a million copies. Some of those songs are political and even got banned. What was so controversial about their music? Oh, I think probably they were very open about the social issues mm. and the corruptions and the inequality. And mm. another thing was also a very stifling uh, education system in South Korea. But this is not just in South Korea because it's a common kind of a problem in East Asia in general. Uh, mm. But no one uh, uh, like uh, Sateji uh, uh, did it so well because he just opened a can of worms. The other hip-hop rappers, for example, uh, Epic High and the many other ones, they mm. followed the suit and then they were becoming even more sharp uh, about these some of the issues, and very, very specific, even without really naming naming the name of person, but they can be really, 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 really sharp about criticizing the, all the injustice and, and, and the things. There was a case until about the mid 2000s, but then from 2010 onwards, South Korean music industry became very industrialized. Mm. K-pop became more and more and more mainstream, and South Korean hip hop became kind of very much part of that industrialization of popular music in Korea. As you're talking there, um, it made mm. me think about the fact that uh, it's just remarkable that everywhere you take the form of hip hop and you put it. It starts there's it's in its origins it's political in its origins it is necessarily kind of adversarial kind of pushing back against the against the machine in some ways. How much do we see political activism appearing in Korean music today? Not very much. Partly because politics in South Korea has changed quite a bit. They no longer have to uh, fight against a military dictatorship. Right. And of course, South Korea is not a perfect society. At least uh, there is a, uh, the state censorship, which was applied until about 1990s, is not completely removed, but it's very much relaxed. So artists were able to express their own views and so on and so forth. Mm. So, uh, so because the political and the economic context changed so much, the political engagement of the artists is far less than what it was before, for example, compared to 1980s and uh, mm. 1990s, a lot of uh, what you call it, uh, university campus uh, protest song uh, was a really, really, really political, I mean, uh, upfront right. uh, political about Korean society. But you don't see it that much nowadays. And the audience, I mean, their taste also changed too. And uh, many rappers, they talk about the everyday life, personal kind of issues, and their love, and so on and so forth. So it's become uh, less politicized. Uh, the next song that you've chosen for us on our playlist mm -hmm. is What You Write What You Write For by Verbal Gent featuring P-Type and the Illest Ills. It's from the 2001 EP Modern Rhymes. Uh, the reason we're playing the song is because of the way that Korean language is used in this record. That's what makes it significant. Let's listen to this. <laughs> 어떤 이들은 몇몇의 대상을 주름 거리로 만들었던 내 예전의 가사를 보곤 어리고 건방진 라임 메이커일 뿐이라고 날 비난을 하네 하지만 한 번이라도 나의 가사들 안에 담겨진 이문화에 대한 사랑과 배려를 일상적인 단어들 속에 담아내려는 노력을 직접 느껴본 이들이 더 많으리라 믿어 누군가를 씹는 랩을 Hey Kyung, you've identified this album as an album that becomes a benchmark for a lot of South Korean rappers. Why this record? He's 
known for uh, his kind of poetic rapping style and his contribution to the rhyming technique mm. uh, in the early uh, 2000s. Before then, there was no such thing at all. And uh, many Korean rappers tried to emulate the uh, American uh, U.S. style because the language is very different and so on and so forth. So he's one of the very first Korean rappers who mm. developed it. And also, he really understood the poetics of the language. It's become a very, very, very kind of a very useful tool for many younger rappers to follow. Of course, nowadays, there are many other rappers who also came up with a very, very sophisticated mm. rhyming techniques and so on and so forth. So the thing is, he was the first one uh, to, uh, and I can think of. And especially um, the, in the 90s and early 2000s, there's a huge argument about authenticity questions mm. and uh, what is authentic uh, Korean rap. Language becomes such a big issue, whether uh, they should uh, rap in Korean only. If they were to rap in Korean, how they should do it. The language choice uh, continues to be a very important factor that mm. really gives the shape to the cultural identity and the styles and aesthetics of uh, South Korean hip hop. I love that. Uh, I love that example mm. because I'm really attracted to rappers that sort of give us these moments where you go, I didn't know you could do that. It expands the boundaries of language just a little bit, and it sounds like that is what's happening there with Verbal Jint. Um, I want to talk about um, one of the biggest rappers in the world right now, which is Sugar from BTS. He released mm. a solo album, went on tour earlier this year before starting his military service. You picked the song Dai Chupita. It incorporates a lot of traditional Korean sounds. Let's listen to some of it. Yeah. Well, if you weren't awake before, you're awake now. Hey, Kyung, how did you? How come you picked this song? Uh, of course, there are many other rappers who use uh, traditional elements uh, such as uh, music and dance and images and all. I mean, setting and everything. But there's uh, no other rappers who uh, brought this kind of a work into attention. I mean, became a really huge nationally and globally. Really shows how this can be done. I mean, it is a song that sort of the minute that it starts to play, you can't, you know, help but start to move your body right along with it. And you want to spend more time in that. Okay, so Young, the next song you chose is by Yoon Murray. She's called The Godmother of Korean Hip Hop. She wrote this song called Black Happiness in 2007. It's a song about her experience as a half Korean and half black musician in Korea. Let's listen to a bit of Black Happiness. In a similar way to like Lauren Hill, you don't have to speak the language to hear the pain and the anger in her voice. What is Yumare rapping about in the song Black Happiness? 
it's about her difficulties in the sense of a marginalization she felt in Korea because of her skin color. But at the same time, music really gives her kind of solace and comfort and uh, happiness. Hmm. So it's a kind of a, her connection with the music. I and mean, given that hip hop is a very much kind of a, has a very strong connection with the African-American culture. But when it comes to the artists, both hip hop and the punk, they are quite ethnically more homogeneous compared to K-pop, which recruit more transnationally. They're more international artists and so on and so forth. So it's a quite a quite interesting contrast. I, I, I'm also interested in the fact that uh... In, within the context of Korean hip-hop, uh, variety shows are a huge cultural force. That's not something that you see a lot in North American hip-hop culture. There are some, but hip-hop is a popular theme of variety shows in Korea. There are battle rap shows. There are dance battle shows. How have these reality shows shaped the way that we understand Korean hip-hop right now, do you think? Oh, huge. It's not just a hip-hop, just about the Korean music industry. Yeah. And it's a hugely uh, influenced by this uh, mediatization of this uh, performance and over all different kinds of genres, not just hip-hop. Uh, so it's every single genre, they specialize, they produce um, different kinds of uh, reality shows. And the, and the many rappers, uh, their career is very much now is supported by these uh, TV programs. So that means that they have a kind of a income and good revenue and the reputation. They, they shoot up to kind of a big stardom and, and, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, this kind of format emphasizes and encourages a certain type of a rapping styles and the competitiveness, a sheer competitiveness. Mm. So for the interest of a kind of viewing rating. On the one hand, it's really great. But on the other hand, it really kind of, a, let's say, um, limit. A diverse and a more richer kind of uh, development of uh, hip hop uh, in terms of uh, the content, especially the mm. uh, the lyrical content. It's a very entertaining, but mm. that's that's the beginning and the end of it. So that is a kind of a shortcomings. These these shows, these competition shows, are kind of framed differently, right? Like the like rap competition show, "Show Me the Money," premiered in 2012. That was the only hip hop show on Korean TV at the time. Then a few years later, they make a spinoff for female rappers called "Unpretty Rap Star." Uh, first of all, what a name, "Unpretty Rap Star." Second of all, what does that tell you about the attitudes towards Korean women in hip hop at the time? It's a great. Problematic, of course, I'm pretty. I mean, why do you have to be I'm pretty in order to become a rap star? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a kind of a misogyny there. But at the same time, a lot of female uh, rappers found a kind of opportunity to develop their career. Uh, mm. Otherwise, they would have a very little kind of opportunity. There's a one rapper called Youngji, Youngji Lee, who won many, many different kinds of reality shows, including competing against male rappers, as well as against other female rappers, really gave shape to her career. She was one of the kind of a, a beneficiary of that program. Yeah, it sounds like quite a quite a force to be winning all those programs. Yes. Hey, uh, gang, we got to talk about the fact that as hip hop grows more popular, rapping becomes this really critical part of K-pop music. Sometimes we call that idol music. There's this ongoing tension between hip hop artists and K-pop stars, but I think it's also led to some meaningful collaborations. Can you just talk a little bit about that tension and where that tension comes from, but also where the relationship is at right now between hip hop artists and idol? Right now, has been there, but at the same time, they seem to have a symbiotic relationship mm. by now. 
and the the rap being a, one of the staples. I mean, the main staples were K-pop, and it's a very important to have uh, the rapper uh, yeah. within uh, the uh, K-pop idol groups. And this is where the female rappers also find the place in uh, the Korean the music business. They are kind of recruited as a rapper, but hip hop also became a very much part of uh, the mainstream uh, music industry. That so they kind of uh, collaborate with each other, right. but at the same time, some. Uh, rappers choose to be against K-pop as their way of uh, staying true and authentic as a hip-hop artist. Mm. It's a kind of a, their, their choice. Some underground rappers, they choose to stay away from these music reality shows because they also would like to see uh, not being involved in kind of the mainstream media industry. Well, that's a and that's a perfect transition to the last song that you picked because the last song mm. that you picked is Hawaji. Uh, that he mm. he one of those artists who's underground hip hop artists who's kind of avoided participating in the mainstream arena. Mm. Let's listen to his song "Got to Leave Soul." Hey Kyung, what is this song about? It's quite difficult to uh, to pinpoint. It's a quite relaxed, lay, uh, a kind of a laid back kind of a thing. It's a very philosophical, and very poetic. Mm. And he simply said he wants to get out of here. He wants to leave the city and lead a life, a really uh, free life, and also free from uh, capitalism, all this uh, rush and, mm. and so uh, corruption and so on and so forth. The, he said, I want to pick up my passport and get out of the here. So it's a quite really, really relaxed, but not really talking about giving any kind of particular kind of reference to an individual or a situation. So yeah. it's a quite uh, abstract. It's very abstract. Yeah. So as K-pop grows more dominant globally mm-hmm. and it makes piles and piles of money, this conversation mm-hmm. around cultural appropriation is getting louder. It's also getting more complicated. I would say particularly because K-pop idols have been criticized for appropriating mm-hmm. Black American hip-hop aesthetics, mm-hmm. you know, styling their hair in twists or cornrows or wearing mm-hmm. do-rags in the videos. Where mm-hmm. are we now in this conversation around this idea that K-pop is appropriating something from hip-hop? It's a really difficult question. And um, in the uh, 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 Korean media industry, uh, race is one of the issues which they don't want to touch. Politics and the race are two things which the Korean um, music industry choose to not get involved too much. Uh, so that probably very much kind of reflects that the way Korean art, many Korean artists seem to be, they can be political, but when it comes to race, they seem to be less informed, not very much conscious of uh, the implication Mm. as much as they should have. Another thing is that they don't really separate the hip-hop culture, what is aesthetics, the American Mm -hmm. or African-American. So uh, from uh, their point of view, for many of them, it's American. It's not a specifically African-American thing. This seems to be slightly kind of colorblind uh, choice they seems to have. Yeah. And sometimes it backfires them quite often. But I think in a way, the hip-hop artist probably is even less um, sensitive. Well, I, I shouldn't say this, but uh, I think it, to some extent, the K-pop artists are far more sensitive toward this uh, cultural appropriation. Mm. For example, BTS, when there was uh, the Black Lives Matters, it, they made a huge donation. They spoke for uh, these kind of issues and yeah. so forth. So the, because they have a, a, the voice, everyone will hear. 
whereas uh, some K-pop artists or um, hip-hop artists, they probably don't think the race, uh, racial issue in the popular music industry globally and locally is a very, very serious matter. I think there are a lot, a long way to go uh, for everyone to to realize how significant and important it is. But I'd like that answer because, mm-hmm. you know, it, it suggests, like all things, that it's a little bit complicated, right? Like the idea that um, that hip hop has been so incorporated into so much of K-pop during a moment where hip hop itself has kind of become the dominant culture in pop music in North America, anyway, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there, there's like a borrowing, but like, are we borrowing specifically from Black Americans, or are we borrowing from? Mm-hmm hip-hop being like this main dominant force in North America. And Mm. and maybe there are still conversations to be had about where that borrowing really is coming from. Do you see anybody trying to like change or lead those conversations um, as they happen right now? I'm not quite sure, but the things that borrowing uh, in K-pop industry is that they borrow from just about everywhere and anywhere. Um, Plus uh, many of the uh, producers and the composers are African-American, the artists. So, uh, I mean, uh, uh, you name it, many, some of the many, many prominent uh, the uh, hip hop producers and the artists, they are very much involved in the production of uh, uh, K-pop, which is a globally, uh, internationally produced uh, music, which has a K-pop label. Yeah. K-pop as a label. So, So in this case, how do you kind of... Uh, which part is a cultural appropriation, which is uh, uh, borrowing, or th- which is a kind of a collaboration? Yeah, and, so, and I think I, what, I, yeah. what you're getting at is an even larger conversation within mm-hmm. hip hop um, as to whether hip hop becoming a large pop music force dilutes mm-hmm. what hip hop is supposed to be about and who who hip hop is supposed to be for. Because there are plenty of artists who will tell you we have long gone past the time when hip hop is a specifically black music that's specifically made for black people. It's now kind of entered into a, an, an, a hyper acceleration era that is uh, almost similar to like what happened with jazz or what happened with blues. It sort, yeah. you know, it sort of migrates mm-hmm. beyond um, the specific confines of the people who made it, right? Yeah, but at the same time, I think uh, the recognizing and uh, paying respect attribute to yes. the its origin is really, really important. Mm-hmm. It's really, really, really important because without it, uh, I mean, uh, we're not getting anywhere, and also kind of would be stealing uh, the kind of uh, someone else's mm-hmm. kind of a heritage. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. Heikyung, you wanted to end this playlist with J Hope, Becky G, Chicken Noodle Soup. Why Chicken Noodle Soup? Oh, I, I, first of all, I love this song. <laughs> I think it's, a, it's a wonderful. It's a really, really, really wonderful. Yeah. And in many ways, it probably shows what is really happening globally, mm. uh, not not just about the hip hop, but what is really happening in the global music industry. The non-English language popular music, like a K-pop and Latin pop and the reggaeton, are becoming increasingly prominent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're no longer kind of marginal. Uh, so in, at this, another thing is uh, which I like about this song is because it, this a song is a cover of a chicken noodle soup by Afro-American artist, Webstar and the Young, mm-hmm. uh, Young B, uh, in 2006. What I like about even more about this, a U.S.-born Latin American pop star, Becky G, yeah. and the rapper and the dancer, J-Hope. Uh, so they're kind of doing together and the K-pop and the Latin pop 
meeting together and there's they're performing in Korean, English, and Spanish. Mm-hmm. I love it. I think this is how I think a wonderful music uh, can uh, meet together and there was a really beautifully um, produced uh, music video and that they're fantastic artists. <laughs> From Guangzhou, Hangzhou, That is a bit of chicken noodle soup. J-Hope, Becky G. Before that, you heard my conversation with Hei Kyung Um. She's a senior lecturer in music at the University of Liverpool. Hey, I'm journalist Sam Sanders. I'm poet Saeed Jones. And I'm producer Zach Stafford, and we are the hosts of a podcast called Vibe Check. On Vibe Check, we talk about everything. News, culture, and entertainment, and how it all feels. That's right. We talk about any and everything on our show, from real-life issues like grief to music and movie critiques. And that barely scratches the surface. Yes, indeed. And it doesn't stop there. We have got a lot to say. So join our group chat, Come to Life. Follow and listen to Vibe Check wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Alameen Abdul Mahmoud, and this is Commotion. Look, when you think of the Beatles, I imagine a few things come to mind, right? One of the greatest bands of all time, a band that shaped how we think about pop culture and pop music, how we think about fandom, how we think about what is even possible for an artist to achieve. What you probably don't hear that much about is the impact that the Beatles' style and fashion had on pop culture. Deirdre Kelly is a journalist and a longtime fan of the Beatles. I spoke with her earlier this year about her new book, Fashioning the Beatles, and I wanted to know what made the Fab Four style something that she wanted to write a book about. Oh, my gosh. Well, for me, it's so impactful when I look at them. Yeah. I have to say I still get weak in the knees. <laughs> I've been like that since I was very young. Yeah. I had my bedroom postered with Beatles images. I gazed at them. I've tried to emulate certain aspects of their style. And just to your question, you know, what you said in the introduction, very few people pay attention to the importance of the look to the Beatles' success. And so I saw a wide open territory, suddenly something that hadn't really been explored before. And there are reams and reams and reams of books and movies and documentaries done on the Beatles. And here was a fresh angle. When I think about the Beatles, I guess like when I think about their fashion, maybe I think of the suits, you know, from the early sort of era. But can you just just give us a sense of the external forces shaping their fashion sense back then? How did they come about this fashion sense? That is an excellent question. And uh, it's in a way the uh, focus of the book. I take a deep dive, in fact, into each year of the decade, the 1960s, that the Beatles essentially dominated. And I did that because the look is ever evolving. Mm. Often the Beatles are described as chameleons. Uh, They also are talked about by Mick Jagger as the four-headed monster because within that (laughs) evolutionary look of theirs is also a consistency where they cleaved together as a band to a unified look. Right. Like there's something kind of still Beatles-esque about every sort of shift 
along the along the yeah, way. Yeah, and that yeah. Beatles esque element yeah. is a very interesting mm. point. Yeah. And something that even I found fascinating as I was doing the research. And the research was uh, painstaking, I must say, because as I mentioned earlier, this hasn't been a topic that many people have delved into. Right. But what you discover about the Beatles is just as with their music, mm-hmm. they took influences and inspiration from a variety of sources. Mm. They were secure enough in their genius, in their own innate sense of greatness and talent to be flexible, to allow themselves to change and go, hey, that's cool. Let me try that on. Literally try that on. And sometimes their fashion choices were extremely eclectic and sometimes not even in fashion. Is there one that stands out for you, like an example? Oh, yeah. For instance, uh, corduroy. Yeah. The Beatles, in fact, won the – or were honored with the MBE from the then Queen Elizabeth, uh, allegedly for boosting corduroy sales and re (laughs) – kindling British manufacturing. And corduroy is a fustian fabric that was delegated to the working classes, to the labor classes. It was not in fashion. This Mm. was something that you wore to work in the factories, in the fields. And the Beatles really dug this fabric because they were deeply anti-conformist, anti-establishment. So that was also a deliberate choice on their part. And so then when they take a fabric that isn't popular and they make it popular, it becomes fashion. I'm sure some of us are wearing it today. Right. I mean, listen, fall season is corridor season for a lot of people. Uh, I guess, listen, last question, leave it it here. If you had to – I'm going to put you on the spot and say if you had to pick one beetle had the best sense of style, who would it be? This is a difficult question. That's like asking me what's my favorite Beatles song. Can never say it. Yes. My book does start with George Harrison, Gorgeous George, as he was known in the day. But I have to say that it's Ringo Starr who wins the style sweepstakes. Ringo, hey, he took his name from his penchant for wearing a multiplicity of rings. So right away, you know, this is a guy who's deeply interested in his look and his uh, visual presentation. And throughout his career with the Beatles, he not only, like the others, jived with the times and, and, and took trends and beatified them, but he always had a polished look and he was very bold in his color sense. Those of us who may have seen the Get Back movie might remember the lime green suit that he walks (laughs) in and then he also loved pattern. And today Ringo is still rocking hard at 83 and his style is impeccable. Deirdre, it makes me happy to give Ringo his flowers any day of the week. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Deirdre Kelly is a journalist and the author of Fashioning the Beatles. I know it's true. It's all because of you. Now and then, also known as the last Beatles song. I don't know if you caught the story earlier this year, but thanks to the magic of AI, Paul and Ringo were able to transform an old John Lennon demo into a new Beatles song, and then they released it last month. 
That's it for the podcast today, but remember, you can listen to any episode or commotion anytime you like, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, check us out on Instagram. We are available at CommotionCBC. My name is Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'll see you tomorrow. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.